This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello once again. We're continuing our session talking about your medications, treatments, benefits, and risks. Uh, and today we're going to have Dr. Lisa Kroon with us. And Dr. Kroon is a professor and chair of the Department of Clinical Pharmacy right here at UCSF, and she has been with us since 1996. She received her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from University of Michigan and then completed a two-year residency right here at UCSF in pharmacy practice and hospital pharmacy administration. Uh, She practices in the Medical Center's Adult Diabetes Clinic and Diabetes Teaching Center, where she cares for people with diabetes and chronic illnesses. She also co-directs the UCSF Fontana Tobacco Treatment Center, where she has been a smoking cessation provider for the past 10 years. Her current research uh, includes interprofessional health education, tobacco cessation, and innovative practice models in community pharmacy setting. Dr. Lisa Kroon. Good evening, and thank you for having me today. So it's my pleasure to talk about how do how do we make sense of all of the medications for diabetes? Because we have many of them. So hopefully by the end of this session, uh, you'll understand their place in therapy, kind of how we use them, common side effects that you might want to be familiar with, um, and I'll also close with some general medication tips. So just last month. Prior to the American Diabetes Association meeting that is held every summer, we had our release of current diabetes statistics in the United States. And unfortunately, the prevalence of diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, keeps growing. So overall, we have about 9% of the U.S. population with diabetes. Last year, this was 8%. And where we're seeing an increase primarily is with type 2 diabetes. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on uh, today, are medications for type 2 diabetes. We also have a large proportion of the population that are estimated to have type 2 diabetes but actually don't know it. It's undiagnosed. And there are many reasons for this, uh, but we need to make do better at actually diagnosing diabetes. And then there's this whole other category called pre-diabetes. And these are people who are at high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And you can see this is also a very large percentage of the population, almost 37% of adults. So you can see that diabetes plays a big role in terms of uh, chronic disease burden in the United States, costing billions of dollars. Now, when we look at why this might be happening, you may uh, look at also obesity trends in the United States over the past decades. And in fact, what we see are that the obesity epidemic and diabetes epidemic parallel each other. So on the top are obesity, and as we get more red here is when prevalence is increasing. So this is from 1994 to 2010. That's the current data that our Center for Disease Control has for us. And you can see the prevalence of diabetes really mirrors that of obesity, which is on the bottom here. And so our country is getting more and more obese, and as a result, we're seeing more and more type 2 diabetes. So obviously of great concern for the United States. Now, this just shows you all of the different uh, family or classes of medications that we currently have for diabetes. I'm going to go into most of these in detail for you. 
But until 1994, we only had two types of medicines. We had insulin, and we had a class of medicines that are called the sulfonylureas. And since then, we've just had an explosion of medicines. So that's great. So we have a lot of options for you. However, this also creates a lot of confusion, not only by people, but also our, us as providers on how to best use the medicine. So I'm going to really uh, spend quite a bit of time going through that today. Now this just shows us the major areas um, in the body, or what we call pathophysiological defects, that contribute to high sugar in the blood, which is called hyperglycemia. So the pancreas is the organ in the body that makes insulin. And in type 2 diabetes, and this is shown right here, the pancreas is, is still making insulin, it's just not enough we have what we call a relative lack of insulin in the body. We also have a condition going on called insulin resistance. So while the pancreas makes insulin, the body is, is, excuse me, is not able to use it effectively. We call that insulin resistance. And the liver is a key organ that is resistant to insulin. And as a result, and that's shown down here, and our liver, I think of our liver as our uh, storehouse of sugar or glucose. And the liver is putting out too much glucose into the body. We have increased production of sugar from the liver as a result of the insulin resistance. And one of our medications primarily works at this defect. Also because of the insulin resistance, our body in the periphery, our, our, our muscles and our fat tissues don't take up glucose as, as normal. We also are learning that in the gut, and this is what's shown up here, that we have certain hormones that are released after we eat, and they play a role in uh, our body's glucose homeostasis or metabolism. And then finally, we're learning that there are probably some centrally uh, mediated effects that have, uh, also affect our pancreas's ability to release insulin and our body's sensitivity to insulin. So, so keeping this in mind, I'm going to talk about how all of the medications work. And they work in different ways to help with these defects that we see. Now, in contrast with type 1 diabetes, which is what we more see children develop, but we're also seeing this occur in adults, too, in, uh, well into uh, their lives. And in type 1 diabetes, the key defect here is that the pancreas stops making insulin. So for people with type 1 diabetes, the treatment is insulin. The body needs insulin in order to have good glucose levels, whether you replace it by injection or whether the body makes it itself. And all of the medications will only work as long as the body is still making insulin. Now, you've probably heard about sugar goals or glycemic goals for diabetes. So I'm just going to review these briefly here. Um, and the goals that I'm presenting are those uh, from the American Diabetes Association, which is what most providers do use. And a general treatment goal for most people with diabetes is an A1C below 7, and that's shown right here. Okay? And that would correlate to an average sugar of about 150 to 160. But what's nice with this hemoglobin A1C is it is telling us the, a person's average sugar control for the previous two to three months. Um, 
We also have goals that look at before the meal goals, after the meal goals. So before the meal, uh, about 70 to 130. After the meal, ideally below 180. Some would even say less than 160. And these are just general treatment goals. So last year, the American Diabetes Association released some revised guidelines that called for us to really individualize treatment goals. And looking at a person's um, uh, you know, newly diagnosed, we might actually st uh, strive for lower A1Cs, very tight sugar control. Because the, the purpose of having good sugar control is to avoid the long-term complications of diabetes, such as the eye problems, kidney problems, nerve problems, but also the uh, cardiovascular problems, having a heart attack or a stroke. So that's the whole purpose of having good sugar control. Yeah, how does hemoglobin A1C differ from the ordinary? Hemoglobin? So the question is, uh, the, the term hemoglobin A1C, how does that differ from what just hemoglobin is? So good question. So what this is, we're just looking for a marker of how much sugar is in the blood. And the hemoglobin in the, on the red blood cell will have sugar that gets attached to it. And some of this occurs uh, normally. Um, but in diabetes, you can see higher amounts. So it's just a marker that we're looking at of, of high sugar in the blood. And you could look at other proteins as well. So, uh, and it doesn't, it, so, stand, so often you'll just hear the term A1C. And I'll be asked, well, what does the A mean and the C mean? It just means the, literally the letter A and the letter C. Okay. All right. So um, tighter tar targets for people who might be more newly diagnosed or also very healthy without a lot of the problems maybe associated with diabetes. And then we also have looser targets for people who uh, may have had diabetes for a very long period of time, have had other health conditions like having a heart attack, um, maybe prone to having low blood sugar reactions. Here we might even uh, have a target around 8%. So it's not one number for all people. I think that's an important message. Same with the medications. One medication might work well for you, but it may not work well for your neighbor. Okay? And always, with all of our treatments, we want to avoid hypoglycemia, which means low blood sugar reactions. Because having a blood sugar too low, below 60 to 70, and depending on how low, can actually be fatal. So while we're very concerned with high sugar in the long term causing complications, having a low blood sugar reaction is obviously very serious, and we need to avoid that. Now, this looks complicated, and I'm going to go through it for you, so you actually don't have to read it all. Um, but there's a website here that I'll read out loud, um, which is just diabetes.org. If you actually go to the American Diabetes Association website and uh, plug in uh, type 2 diabetes general recommendations, you'll get their review article on really how we practice diabetes uh, treatment in the United States. So this tiny little line on the top says healthy eating, weight control, and increased physical activity. So our, our foundation or cornerstone for treating diabetes, both type 2 and type 1, is lifestyle and having healthy eating and, and good weight control. 
and physical activity. So that goes all along through everything I'm saying, but I'm not going to talk about that today. The next step would be to start a medication. So our initial drug therapy choice. And, and this says metformin up here. So for most, and I'm going to go through metformin extensively here. Metformin became available in early 1995 and just transformed really how we treat type 2 diabetes. It's a highly effective drug, and when used alone, doesn't cause low blood sugar reaction, a real plus. Um, so that is our first choice, and there's, there's excellent evidence behind metformin of why it is so effective. Now, after being on one medication, it's over time, that may not be enough for good sugar control. So then we have to look for additional medication that we add to the initial medicine. So we could move on to two drug combinations, even moving on to three drug combinations, and then at any time we may consider insulin therapy, depending on how, how, how uh, the sugar control. And so I'm going to go through each of these in a little bit more detail. So again, while I'm focusing on, we're talking about medications tonight, uh, it's not to underscore the importance of all the other parts of diabetes treatment, the physical activity, uh, more what we call weight optimization. I tell people this uh, key is to not gain weight, uh, but we're not looking at getting back to your high school body weight necessarily here, okay? Because we even know that a 5 to 10-pound weight loss in someone who's overweight with type 2 diabetes can make a huge difference on your sugar control. If you're not having any physical activity, just starting some walking a few days a week might actually have a big effect on your sugars. And then self-monitoring of the sugar, so where people actually check their sugar to, to see what the values are, um, can also be very effective in helping with sugar control. But again, we're going to be talking about the medicines here tonight. Now, metformin being the initial treatment of choice, uh, with all of the medications, we have certain considerations that we go through to make sure the medication is appropriate. And these are highlighted on the left here. We look at efficacy. So how effective is this drug in lowering the blood sugar or lowering the A1C? There is some uh, very differences between the medications, but in general, most of the medications will lower the A1C about by one to two percentage points in the A1C. So for example, if your A1C is eight, adding metformin, we would expect you to get pretty close to goal, pretty close to seven, maybe even better. The next consideration is the potential for this medication to cause a low blood sugar or hypoglycemia. And as I mentioned with metformin, this is a very low risk. So that's a plus as an initial choice. We also look at the medication's ability to cause weight gain. Obviously not an ideal thing for someone with type 2 diabetes who most often may be overweight, if not obese. Metformin does not cause any weight gain. So that's, that's a, a, a nice plus for it. And then looking at side effect profile of a medication. So here we'll look at, um, you know, maybe a person has some kidney problems or liver problems or heart failure, other conditions that could affect how well the body handles a, a particular medication. So we'll look at that. And with metformin in terms of side effects, and I'll go over this, but primarily the main side effect is some stomach upset. And we can do things to help minimize that. 
And then, of course, another consideration is always the cost. Now, with more and more Americans getting insurance, which is uh, fabulous, um, and, and having thus more drug benefit coverage, this may be less of an issue. But metformin, since it's been out, um, is actually quite inexpensive. So, that, so the cost is considered low. What's the mechanism of action? Does it uh, produce more insulin? Or <coughs> Question is, what is its mechanism of action? I'm going to get there next. Oh, okay. Because okay? great question. All right, but I'm not going to. It's going to be my second class I talk about. So the first group, of the family of medicines that I'll talk about are the sulfonylureas. And in my slides, you'll see the, the word SFU. So we've had the sulfonylureas since the late 1950s, and these are very effective medications. Some common names that you may have heard are gliburide, glipizide, glimepiride. Outside the U.S., the gliburide is called glibenclamide, so you may see that. And their mechanism of action is to stimulate the pancreas to release more insulin. Because as I said, the pancreas has a relative lack of uh, ability to make enough insulin, and that's why the blood sugar is high. So these medicines increase insulin release. Generally taken once or twice a day, and we start with a, a small dose and slowly increase it, or what we say titrate, as needed for good sugar control. Now, there are other sulfonylureas available. See, these are some of the more common ones. And some are more preferred in people who have kidney problems. And, and so glipizide would be preferred in this situation. It has a lesser of a chance to cause low blood sugar or hypoglycemia. So obviously a medication that increases insulin release, a side effect could be that it works too well and causes hypoglycemia. Um, so that's a challenge, and so people need to be able to monitor their, their blood sugar. A, a very similar type of medicine to the sulfonylureas are called meglitinides or glinides. Um, and these actually work the same way. They stimulate insulin release. They just go to a slightly different site on the, in the pancreas um, to cause it to make more insulin. Their difference, however, as I mentioned, the sulfonylureas are generally only having to taken once or twice a day because they're quite long-acting. The glinides are very short-acting. So, in fact, people take them just before eating. And that can be a, a challenge if you have to take a medication three times a day versus just once a day, for example, with glipizide or gliburide. But for someone with kidney problems, these can be really have a nice niche here because with kidney problems, as I mentioned, we're concerned that a person might get some low sugar reactions on a long-acting sulfonylurea. These have a nice role in that setting. So just another option for people. Okay, now moving on to the metformin. And metformin's part of the family of medicines called biguanides actually comes from the French, uh, 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 French flower, uh, lilac flower. Um, so how does metformin work? So metformin does nothing at the pancreas. It does not cause it to make more insulin. But it's going to that liver where I said that, remember, the liver was insulin resistant and was putting out too much glucose into the body. So the metformin works mainly at the liver to reduce sugar output or release. And that's how it makes your blood sugar lower. 
And the best way I, I describe this is for people with diabetes who self-monitor is if you ever go to bed, check your blood sugar, you're sleeping, you're not eating anything, and you wake up and your sugar is higher. How can that be? I didn't eat anything. Where did that sugar come from? It came from your liver. So when we're not eating, the liver knows this, senses this, and it, it makes either uh, breaks down stored sugar um, and releases it, or it makes sugar. So it keeps our. It's normally supposed to keep our body in a nice tight sugar range, but unfortunately, with type two diabetes, it's insulin resistant, and it's putting out too much sugar. Okay, and I've already gone through some of the pluses with metformin. There's no weight gain. Um, it even may have a, a slight. Uh, a mild effect on the cholesterol to lower cholesterol and many people with type 2 diabetes also have problems with high cholesterol and when used alone does not cause low blood sugar reaction so it's considered quite safe for, for that reason so in general it's considered our first choice of therapy and in, in fact I mentioned the pre-diabetes group um, of people that we have millions of Americans Metformin's also used for pre-diabetes. Now, how do we dose metformin? So I mentioned that one of the most common side effects are what we call gastrointestinal side effects. Um, so we actually start metformin with a small dose. Make sure you take it with food to help minimize any stomach upset. And then we'll slowly increase it over the first couple weeks to a target amount of about 1,500 milligrams a day, or 2,000 milligrams. So we may start on 500 milligrams once a day or twice a day and slowly get up to about 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams. That's a, a real treatment amount to get, to get our A1Cs down. Now, the, the, the uh, stomach upset uh, is, is many types. There's nausea, cramping, but also diarrhea. And many people describe it to me as not really just diarrhea, but loose stools that just kind of come on suddenly and go, got to get to the bathroom. So that's why it's key that we start with a small amount and have you take it with food. And, and most people do extremely well that way. Um, if that still continues to be a challenge, there is uh, an extended release formulation, um, and that has shown to have some less stomach upset. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that these, the pills for metformin are very large, okay? So even if you get to 1,000 milligrams twice a day, I have many patients who still take 500 milligram pills but just take two at a time because they're easier to swallow. Uh, you also might find there's a bit of a fishy odor to them, and that's just inherent um, in, in, the, in the, 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 the smell of metformin. So it's still a good medication. It hasn't gone bad. Now... One of the a, a rare side effect of metformin is called lactic acidosis. Um, very rare, but a very serious side effect. And this is when um, lactate builds up in the body and, be, and causes our blood to become acidic, which it shouldn't be. We should be very neutral uh, uh, blood. Um, and this has uh, has some severe uh, uh, about fifty percent mortality associated with it. Now. Because of this uh, rare side effect, however, there are reasons why we don't use metformin. And when we use metformin appropriately, people should never get that rare side effect. And the key condition is kidney problems. 
So if people have severe kidney problems, we cannot use metformin. So it's possible you are diagnosed with diabetes. <clears throat> Maybe you use metformin for 10, 15 years, and it's working really well for you. But unfortunately, for some, you know, whether it's from the diabetes or high blood pressure or other problems, you develop kidney problems. You actually may have to stop the metformin. So that's another important uh, theme is that your medications that may be appropriate at one point in time for you may not be at another point in time, and your providers will continually be assessing this. Other conditions that we would avoid metformin would be more severe uh, liver problems, um, heart failure, but more unstable heart failure, okay, where you're having to maybe go into the hospital, but if it's, it's very well compensated and stable, metformin should be just fine. Um, metformin is almost 100% uh, cleared or removed from your body by your kidneys, and that's why that is the key uh, uh, precaution for using metformin, because if your kidneys aren't working well, the metformin will build up in your system and increase your chance for that rare side effect. Okay. And then one of the other more less common side effects is um, a vitamin B12 deficiency. Now this doesn't happen overnight. Our bodies need very tiny amounts of B12, um, but more if someone's older and is having some anemia, we would, and we would look for B12 deficiency that could be caused from the metformin and we would just replace that, um, uh, the B12. Okay, moving on to another class that are actually really uncommonly used, the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors. We have two kinds, acarbose and miglitol. And the way this family of medicines works is that they bind to enzymes in your uh, intestines, your small intestines, that are responsible for digesting carbohydrates. So it just kind of slows the digestion down. All the carbohydrate or sugar from your meal still gets absorbed, but just more slowly, allowing your body more time to handle all the sugar from your meal. So because the amount of sugar isn't a decrease, it's just more slowly absorbed, uh, these medicines are not as effective or, um, at lowering the blood sugar. And common side effects, which kind of limit their use in the United States at least, is they cause a lot of flatulence or gas. And people don't really like to have a lot of gas in this country, at least. It's used quite a bit in Europe, I understand. Um, and the other, the other challenge with it is you have to take the pill with your first bite of the meal. So you have to take this, if you're eating three meals a day, three pills a day. So not as easy to adhere to. And I actually haven't seen that family of medicine used for quite a long time. The next family are called thiazolidinedienes, or TZDs. You'll see TZD throughout the rest of my slides. Though. And we have two available, uh, rosiglitazone and pioglitazone. And these are the only class of medicines that really get at that target of the insulin resistance that I was describing as one of the key defects in type 2 diabetes. So these work in the body to allow our muscle and fat tissue to absorb more uh, glucose. They also will help with that, the, the same way metformin does to, to re reduce the, the glucose output by the liver. These medications work on some nuclear receptors in the cells, um, affecting some uh, gene transcription of uh, uh, 
transporters that allow glucose to get into the cell. And because of that, it, it takes some time to work. So when you start pioglitazone, for example, you're not going to see a real quick effect overnight. It's going to take a month or two. Unlike all the medicines I've already talked about, within days you'll start to see an effect. So these take a while to kick in. Similarly, if you stop them, their effect is going to last a couple months as well. Now, um, while they cause weight gain, okay, so that's, you would say that's a negative, they actually work very well in people who are overweight or obese. Because people who are overweight or obese more likely have issues with insulin resistance, that, which is contributing to the high blood sugar. And these medicines really target um, that, that defect. Uh, pretty easily taken once, usually, and sometimes twice a day. Now, as the focus of this, these series is to look at you know, uh, uh, side effects and toxicity of, of medicines, um, the TZDs have had their problems. Um, the main group of people we would not use the TZDs in are people with heart failure. And def technically, what's called more severe, class 3 or 4, but some would avoid their use in all people with heart failure. And the reason for this is that both pioglitazone and rosiglitazone has, have been shown to increase the, the risk of heart failure, or kind of unmasking it in someone who had it de being developed, primarily because of water retention or fluid retention. So they'll cause people to gain, to gain weight through some water and fluid retention. And rosiglitazone actually uh, was... Uh, under restricted access in the United States until recently, because there were some what are called meta-analyses where they look at many studies and put them all together and try to draw a conclusion. And there were some earlier studies showing that uh, rosiglitazone could increase your cardiovascular risk, in particular for having a heart attack or myocardial infarction. Um, more recently, this analysis was redone and the FDA uh, 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 felt that this risk was probably not there, so you might see it again uh, in more use, uh, but we have an, another option, which is pioglitazone. Now, unfortunately, pioglitazone recently had some concern where there were reports of bladder cancer associated with it. Obviously not a very good choice, but it's an extremely rare possible side effect. But just to know, some other countries in the world actually have, have uh, made pioglitazone not available in Europe. Okay, going to move on to an, another class, which is relatively new. Uh, so a lot of people tend to want to hear quite a bit about this, uh, what are called incretins, incretin-based therapy. So I mentioned uh, early on that we've identified some, or researchers have identified some key hormones that are released in our gut when we eat. And two of the, and these are called gut incretins. One is called GIP, and the other is called GLP-1. And these are released from our small intestines, and they have a role in helping maintain sugar control when we're eating. And I'm going to go into those mechanism of action in my next slide. Um, these hormones are very quickly chewed up or digested or degraded by an enzyme in our blood called DPP4, or dipeptidylpeptidase 4. So when we look at developing a drug, 
that would, would mimic what our body already does or mimic a hormone our body already does, uh, we could either develop an analog to it, just like we did with insulin. I'll talk a little bit about that. So we have some GLP-1 analogs. We have two available, exenatide and liraglutide. Or we could look at how to prevent this hormone from getting broken down by the enzyme DPP-4. So we have a group of medicines called DPP-4 inhibitors. And we actually have four of them available now. Uh, they just keep coming out. We have citagliptin, saxagliptin, alagliptin, and linagliptin. So we just remember kind of gliptins. These are DPP-4 inhibitors. So what these hormones do in the body is multifold. But one of the key uh, actions of GLP-1 is that it increases insulin release. So as we eat, the hormone gets released from the gut goes to our pancreas, to the beta cells that make the insulin, and causes it to make more insulin. But what's interesting with these hormones is that they release insulin in what's called a glucose-dependent manner, meaning when my sugar is higher, the hormone will have a greater effect at increasing insulin release. But if my sugar gets to, uh, normalizes, the effect of the, of the hormone is less. So that's considered glucose. It depends on what the glucose is. If it's high, it'll have more of an effect. If it's not high, it's going to have a less of an effect. Um, and so then when these medicines are used alone or in combination with metformin, they have a very low chance of causing low blood sugar or hypoglycemia. So that, that, that's a, a nice feature. Um, GLP-1 also... Um, reduces another hormone that is released from our pancreas, from our alpha cells, um, that, called glucagon. Now, glucagon is sort of the complementary hormone to insulin. So if insulin causes the blood sugar to come down, glucagon makes it go up. So it's, it's a delicate balance in our body. And after we eat, we're ingesting glucose, our body doesn't need to make it, and so our glucagon should actually come down. But for, for, uh, for people with type 2 diabetes and actually type 1 diabetes, our post-meal levels of glucagon don't respond as, as they should. And so GLP-1 helps reduce that, and the effect of that would be that the liver would put out less glucose. So glucagon goes to the liver and causes that storehouse of sugar to release sugar. GLP-1 also works to slow how quickly the food empties from your stomach, what we call stomach emptying. Um, and in fact, um, people on the GLP-1 analogs, will, may, a key side effect is nausea because we're, we're keeping food in our stomach longer. A, a plus with the uh, GLP-1 analogs is they actually seem to have an effect in the brain to make us feel full to promote satiety and inhibit our appetite. And I've had many people say, you know, I used to go for second helping, and now on these drugs I just, I'm satisfied after one helping uh, of, 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 of the dish. And then the last action, which is exciting, but this is more, uh, has been shown in animals, uh, not clinically in humans, is preservation of the cells that actually make our insulin, which are called beta cells. So that's a, a very intriguing um, possibility for these medicines. 
So the first one, uh, GLP-1 analog, is exenatide. And this was um, uh, actually isolated, this protein, from the saliva of a lizard called the Gila monster. And there's a picture of this um, on, on the side there. And this is a, a pretty big lizard, okay, that actually lives underground for most of the year, so it has some very interesting metabolic uh, properties. Um, they found that uh, this hormone, this um, protein from the lizard, very much over uh, is similar to our human GLP-1 hormone that I've just been telling you all about. Um, and so, so that's how they developed this medication for, for type 2 diabetes. But the difference with the, um, what's called exendin is that it's resistant to the human enzyme that normally would degrade GLP-1. So it just doesn't get uh, cleared up or cleared by our body as quickly. So that's why it's being able to use for medication and only has to be given twice a day. This is by injection twice-a-day injection, usually at breakfast and dinner. Uh, more recently, an extended-release formulation came out um, that is taken once a week. And this has uh, sort of our the same technology that our medical-grade sutures have that dissolve, sort of like a wiffle ball, you know, microscopic that has the medication that slowly dissolves under the skin and can be used once a week. Um, Exenatide, or the brand name, I haven't been using brand names purposefully, but uh, these are all by brand. Exenatide is called Bieta, and uh, these are some of the precautions or people we would not use it in. Okay? Uh, people with severe kidney problems, we don't use them. Uh, if someone already has problems in their GI tract, gastrointestinal tract, that, as I mentioned, they slow stomach emptying of food, this could be problematic. And all of the incretin-based treatments have a concern for pancreatitis, which means inflammation of our pancreas. Uh, very uncommon and a little bit controversial because people with type 2 diabetes, compared to the general population, actually have an increased risk for pancreatitis. So is it the medications causing this, or is this just the inherent increased prevalence in type 2 diabetes? It's a little unclear, but we have definitely had cases that we feel were due to medication. And then for uh, the, the weekly formulation of exenatide, uh, uh, for people with a family history of thyroid cancer, we can't use uh, the medicines. The other um, uh, medication in this category is liraglutide, uh, very similar, uh, but, but this is just taken once a day instead of twice a day. So where xenotide is twice a day, this is once a day. And then moving on to the DPP-4 inhibitors. Um, so how these are working is, is, is we're not replacing GLP-1 hormone. We're just slowing down our own body's making of hormone uh, or, or uh, de degrading of hormone more slowly. So it inhibits the enzyme, the DPP-4, and thus slows the degradation of our body's incretins. And we have four available. What's unique with them is these are pills. They're not injected like the previous class of medicines, um, and they're taken once a day. 
And depending on the medicine, they may have different uh, precautions for how to use in people with kidney problems and also any drug-drug interaction potential. A plus with these medicines is that they um, uh, are weight neutral. I, I forgot to mention with exenatide and liraglutide, the, we actually can see weight loss, about four or five kilograms. So, so people like that. All right. But these are considered weight neutral, which is, which is nice, and, and actually cause very little nausea. And then the last family of medicines are called um, SGLT2 inhibitors. And these are the most recent type of medicines that have become available. We have two right now, uh, canagliflozin and dapagliflozin. And what these do is normally our kidneys reabsorb most of the sugar or glucose that is filtered uh, in the urine. So very little sugar goes into your urine. And this, uh, the, the, the glucose gets reabsorbed by a transporter called SGLT2. So these medications inhibit that action, and so we excrete more glucose into the urine. Now, you can imagine possible side effects if our, if our urine has more sugar in it. So, in fact, we see more yeast infections in women, um, also for, for uh, infections for men, and also bladder infections. So uh, I will admit we have very little experience with this family of medicines at UCSF, but they're being used. Um, they also have what's called a diuretic effect, uh, which causes your body to uh, get rid of more water, so we can see a little bit of dizziness uh, when starting these medicines. But again, another option for people with type 2 diabetes. So then to summarize how all the medications work, to our good question earlier, metformin, again, works mainly at the liver to reduce sugar production. Our TZDs work in the periphery in our muscle and fat to allow them to take up more glucose. We have the acarbose and mingletol, the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors that work in the gut to delay how quickly sugar or carbohydrate is absorbed when we eat. We have the sulfonylureas and the glyonides that work at the pancreas to increase insulin release. And then we have these newer agents, the DPP-4 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists that work in, in several ways to help reduce the blood glucose. And again, the GLP-1 receptor agonists seem to work centrally to have an effect on appetite. Do you ever use these in combination, like uh, the ones that affect uh, liver yep. and the other ones that enhance insulin? You betcha. So excellent. You are spot on with your question. So the question was, do we ever use these in combination? But you were saying, with, for example, metformin that works at the liver here, versus medicines that work at the pancreas, and that's the exact thing we do. I'm going to get to that now, but we combine medicines that work differently, and then we have additive effects. So that's a key point. So to that end, so we have two types of medicines, the sulfonylureas and the glyonides that increase insulin release. Now, we wouldn't combine those medicines together because they're working identically the same way. Right. So that's not a logical combination. But combining, let's say, glipizide with metformin, very logical combination. Or combining one of the DPP-4 inhibitors with this class of sulfonylurea or metformin, 
very, very commonly done. So I'm going to be getting into that right now. Okay. So we do have other um, non-insulin medicines, three other families that I'm not going to talk about. They're here for your reference, uh, but these are very rarely used, if, if at all. And I'm going to finish up talking about insulin. But there's a medicine called pramlantide uh, that um, is a, an analog of another hormone that's released from the beta cell called amylin. And it has a very mild effect on the blood sugar. It has to be injected. And this is used in people who are injecting pre-meal insulin three times a day. Again, very frequently used. There's a cholesterol-lowering medicine called colocevalum that more recently got approval for also helping to lower sugar, probably from just binding to cholesterol in the gut. And then there's another medicine called bromocryptine. Uh, not really sure uh, you know, how it works, but it, it seems to uh, kind of reset uh, our brain's uh, hormone that might be uh, involved in uh, blood glucose control. I have never seen it used, but just to know you might see it listed out there. We don't use it here. And then finally, I often get asked questions about what about herbs? Are there herbs that help lower the blood glucose? And indeed there are. And I have several of them listed here. A couple ones that I've had patients use are gymnema, uh, bitter melon. And I'll tell you, I've had people start these herbs, and they sure do lower the blood glucose. Um, cinnamon is another common one. Uh, I haven't, it's very, very mild effects. So I really honestly haven't seen it have a big effect on the sugar, but totally non-toxic toxic, uh, herb there. So my recommendation, if you're considering using an herb to help lower your sugar, is to not make too many changes at once. So if your provider is just starting you on, let's say metformin, or is changing the, the amount of your diabetes medication. If you then start taking an herb, it's going to be hard to know what's doing what. So not to change everything all at once. Let's say you're on a steady dose of your prescription diabetes medicines and you want to try an herb. What I like to do is do our own little mini study. Start the cinnamon, start the gymnema, and let's check your blood sugar. Does it make any difference? over the next month or so. And if it doesn't, maybe we need to, you want to consider whether you want to you know, be paying all that money for the herb. And then my final consideration for herbs is to be very careful with your product selection. So uh, we have found, especially even with, uh, for herbs uh, or supplements that you might find, let's say, uh, advertised on the internet to help cure your diabetes or, you know, drastically reduce your blood sugar. The FDA has actually uh, pulled some of those. And what do you think they find in them? Well, they find prescription diabetes medicines in them, like glyburide. So no wonder they're having an effect. So just be very careful with what we call adulteration, or where they've actually added prescription medications into their herbal product. Because you want to know what you're taking, right? So moving on. So after we've been on one medication, general metformin, we would move on to and then uh, adding a second drug. And so the key here then would be to add a drug that has a different mechanism of action. So I might add a sulfonylurea. I might add a TZD 
a DPP4 inhibitor, a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and maybe I even add insulin. So at any point, if the blood sugar control is, is quite poor, maybe the A1C is over 10%, and despite all you're doing with your lifestyle and taking the medication, you just can't get your sugars down, uh, then we might consider insulin really at any point. And we have quite often wait too long to start insulin therapy. So advancing to dual therapy, if you're already on metformin, here would be all of your options. So you can imagine that's confusing. Well, why did I get, uh, you know, Genuvia started, but my neighbor started on Glyburide? So there's lots of options. So you want to really, you know, ask questions and make sure you understand why you are taking the medicine that you are. But as I highlighted at the beginning, we really, we, treatment of diabetes is very individualized. So there may be a reason why you cannot take a particular medicine. Some of these are highlighted here. So as I said, if, someone, if you have kidney problems we, uh, or more severe kidney problems, we cannot use metformin. So that's just going to be out of the options for you. Um, someone with very severe liver disease, Really, insulin is probably the safest choice. Uh, I mentioned heart failure. We would avoid uh, quite often the thiazolidinediones. Um, if someone has a woman, for example, but also men with osteoporosis or even been shown to have reduced bone density, we will avoid those TZDs again because they've actually been shown to reduce bone density. So you can see these medic medications, unfortunately, have side effects. And I've already talked about the other um, uh, pancreatitis, bladder, bladder cancer. And then for if someone already has edema or swelling, we would not use a, a thiazolidinediones. So you can see how we really uh, carefully individualize the treatments. There's no one way to, to manage diabetes. Now, what happens when we get on to combination medications... The manufacturers, in order to maintain their brand, um, have combination pills. Um, I will tell you I'm not a big fan of them because I think that it causes confusion. And I don't even memorize the names of these combination brand names. Because what I've seen happen is that providers don't know what these are, what the names are, and they're not even aware that there's two medications in this pill. And then they go add something else. So it just creates a lot of medication errors. And, and with a com combination pill that has two medicines, well, what if I want to adjust the amount of one but not the other? Causes problems. Um, that said, if you were on a very you know, stable dose of two medicine, diabetes medicines and there is a combination pill available, then that would just be one pill for you to take. That, that to me, is really the only uh, place for them. And as I said, they're all for brand. It's just a way for the manufacturer to keep a brand out there, and you can bet they're a lot more expensive. So after being on two medications, we might move to a three-drug non-insulin combination and then finally moving on to insulin. And at any time we look to adjust your treatment or to adjust the medications, we're always going to, again, come back to a couple of things. Looking at your A1C goal. Um, you know, uh, what is your current A1C and, and where do you need to get? 
and also looking at you as a whole. Maybe uh, your blood sugar started to go up because it's winter now, it's colder, it's raining, and I've stopped walking. Not because the medications aren't working, but I've, I've changed my physical activity pattern. Uh, or maybe I've started to eat more rice or have more tortilla. I used to have one, now I have two. So we look at changes to diet and physical activity always in consideration with the medications. Now, talked about insulin, and, and I've mentioned that we often wait too long to start to use insulin. Now, when I have people who ask me about using herbs, it's because they say they want to use something natural, right? Well, guess what is, is the most natural medication for diabetes? It's insulin, right? That's what our body already is making, but just not enough of anymore. So when we make the move to insulin, again, look back. What are your glycemic goals? Looking at, you know, we're doing what we can with the medications and the, and the lifestyle. But there can be other reasons going on for a person's blood sugar to go up. You may be in a state of stress. And this could be an infection, like having a bladder infection, or even just a, a cold in the winter. Any stress on the body raises your blood sugar. It could be psychosocial stress. An example I'll give here is maybe you just had a loved one pass away and you're grieving. Well, people who are grieving actually may have sugars go up as a result of a stress in, in the body. Um, there are medications that raise blood sugar. A common type are uh, uh, medications like prednisone, a, a type of a, what's called a glucocorticoid uh, or a steroid. But some people may take this for asthma, when the asthma uh, flares, um, or for rheumatoid arthritis. In fact, prednisone is the most common cause of uh, medication-related high blood sugar. And then there are some other uh, antipsychotic medications that can raise the blood sugar. So we actually put all that in context. But quite often what we see with, with uh, the pattern of type 2 diabetes is that over time we can see that the pancreas just does not make enough insulin anymore. And as I said, the medications will only work if there's insulin in the body, whether the pancreas is making it or whether I'm injecting and replacing, replacing it. So many people, insulin um, will be part of treatment of type 2 diabetes. So I'm going to just go over the different types of insulins rather briefly and then talk a little bit about some side effects um, here and kind of how we use the insulin in type 2 diabetes. So I generally categorize insulin by four types, rapid-acting and short-acting, and these are taken before each meal or before the meal. Uh, we have intermediate-acting, long-acting, and I'm going to go through each of these. And insulin, until recently, the only way to inject insulin is subcutaneously, so under the, uh, under the skin. And we really prefer the abdomen because you see the most consistent absorption of insulin there. And this is just a, a table that kind of looks at what we call the time action profile of insulin. I'm going to show you a graph of this in, in just a moment. Uh, but with all medications, we look at uh, characteristics of when do they start to work, what is their onset, when will they be at their greatest effect, the peak? And for insulin, that's when it's at its highest level in the body. How long will the medication work? So for insulin, after I inject, 
how long will that dose continue to have an effect on my sugar? Um, and then last, I actually have kind of the appearance of the insulin. So really, for most insulins now, uh, these are clear. They should be clear as water. Some of our older insulins, with one of them is NPH, which is an intermediate-acting insulin, is actually cloudy. It's a suspension. So you need to roll the vial or the, the, the pen to resuspend it. Now, just on June 27th, so I had to update my slide, um, an inhaled insulin became available. And I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce, but I think it's as, uh, I've heard it pronounced as aphrasia. You can't get it yet. Um, we actually had another inhaled insulin um, that uh, another company made many, uh, several years ago. It uh, stopped being distributed because nobody used it. So we have an inhaled insulin, okay, kind of like we would take for, like, for your asthma, that gets inhaled through the lining of your lung. So this is an insulin that would be used for mealtime. Uh, I, I don't see it really taking over uh, a lot because we, the, if you look at... Um, you know, syringes and needles, the needles now, they're so fine, you don't even feel it when you inject insulin. And so this is just a visual of what I had on the previous slide for the numbers. So this is hours after injection and my insulin level. So the rapid-acting insulins and what are called short-acting insulins, you can see very quickly get absorbed and have a very high level quickly. And that's really what would be happening normally for a person if their pancreas was working properly. And then the long-acting insulins, which are down here, just provide a low-level amount of insulin. And so our bodies always have a low-level amount of insulin. This is showing you what would be normal uh, insulin release with blood glucose levels. On the top are, are blood glucose levels, um, and this is kind of going from maybe 60 to 100, 100. Maybe after breakfast I go up a little bit, come down, and so on, but I never get too high, a very tight range of sugar. The, the correlating insulin level here is after I eat, my body excretes uh, shoots up a bolus of insulin, then it comes down, and so on. But you can see that the amount of insulin never goes to zero. We always have some circulating insulin in the body, and that's what those long-acting insulins serve to replace. So our initial step, um, if we're looking at type 2 diabetes, would be more to first replace this background insulin, which is this blue dotted line here. And then we may move on to mealtime insulin replacement. So as we consider insulin for type 2 diabetes, the way we transition to insulin is generally starting a long-acting, like uh, uh, insulin glargine or insulin detamir. And the rationale here is that the insulin will help uh, keep the blood sugar overnight under good control, and then in the morning you wake up and you take your non-insulin uh, medications to help maintain blood sugar control during the day and we can have very good effect in sugar control in this type of a regimen. Now, other considerations for using insulin is that if you are not monitoring your sugar before starting insulin, you certainly need to start now because the, the most concerning side effect of insulin, you can imagine, is hypoglycemia, having a bl low blood sugar reaction, which can be very serious. 
you're probably going to have some more frequent visits with your providers just until you get stable on the insulin regimen. Um, and you may go uh, meet with a certified diabetes educator to kind of get some more self-management education when starting insulin. Other considerations is how to, how to deliver the insulin. So I did mention we have an inhaled one. You can't get it quite yet. But uh, we either inject insulin with a syringe from, with, from insulin that's in a bottle or a vial. And we also have some pen devices, which are kind of nice. And here are some pictures of those. There's different types. We have pre-filled pens where the pen has um, three millimeters of insulin already in it. I just screw on a needle and I give the insulin. When it's finished, I, I toss it. We also have a durable pen that opens up and a cartridge of insulin goes in it. And so instead of throwing the whole pen away, I just keep refilling the cartridges. And then you have to uh, get pen needle uh, to, to screw on the end. Um, these are people quite like using the pens because they're very uh, portable, um, easier to use. We also see less errors in terms of amount of insulin that people get. So a nice, nice option. Other side effects for insulin, the main thing is the hypoglycemia. Uh, very rarely you might see a little local reaction from where you injected. It. It's also very, very uncommon. An actual allergy to insulin uh, is extremely rare, and it's usually not the insulin, but some of the excipients in the solution. The other important point with insulin is that you do not want to keep injecting into the same site. Because when we talk about insulin's effect to lower sugar, insulin is also one of our main um, growth hormone action in the body. So it causes fat cells to take fat up. So if you keep injecting in the same place, you're going to get a, a fat nodule on, under your skin. And that could affect the insulin absorption. So you need to rotate the insulin where you're injecting it. And then the weight gain, we can see weight gain, um, which is not a good side effect, but part of that is due to having low sugar reaction. Because what happens when you have a low sugar reaction? You have to eat glucose. And glucose is calories, right? So, so, so that is part of the reason for the weight gain. But many people do really well. And then storage considerations are also important. I won't go too much in depth. But in general, once you start using the insulin, whether it's the pen or the vial, you do not have to put it back in the fridge. You can keep it at room temperature for many of the insulins for about a month, some of them a little bit longer. But they can't get too hot either. So most of them you can get up to about 86 degrees Fahrenheit or room temperature. So depending on where you live, if it may be the summer or even not the summer, and if it's over 90 degrees Fahrenheit in your house, uh, you need to keep the insulin in the fridge. Now, insulin that hasn't been opened, that's where the expiration date applies to that insulin bottle or pen. So that, and that's only for insulin that's been kept in the fridge. So I talked a little bit about the next step of after being on one shot of a long-acting insulin, we then might move on to using insulin before the meal. So we'd be using a rapid or a quick-acting insulin at that point. And generally here, um, for your non-insulin medicines, we would actually stop the sulfonylurea. Because if you recall, what was the sulfonylurea doing? It increases insulin release from your pancreas. So if you need to start taking insulin before the meal, 
then probably the sulfonylurea is not having much effect anymore, and we would stop that medication. But we may continue, for example, the metformin, because remember, it's working totally differently. So I'm going to conclude with just some general medication tips. So I'm often asked, you know, are generic medicines, are they really okay? You know, what's the difference between a brand and a generic medicine? And honestly, for the majority of medicines, there's no difference. A generic medicine um, basically starts to get produced once a brand medicine's patent had run out. It's the same chemical. It's just made by a different company. And they're all approved by the FDA and undergo very rigorous testing. Now, there are certain medicines, like some hormones, maybe thyroid hormone, where it's not that the brand is better than a generic, but there could be very subtle differences of how much gets absorbed from your gut uh, that we would want you to stay with the same manufacturer. But for the majority of medicines, there is no difference in terms of how they're working. It's the same compound. That said, you may go have a generic, let's say, um, blood pressure medicine, and it may be a small green pill one month, and you go back the next month, and it's a different-sized white pill because a different company is making it. So you do always want to make sure exactly what you're getting and understand what to take and how much. So another tip, I am a very big advocate of keeping and having an accurate list of all your medicines that you have, that you have with you at home, or if you want to carry it with you. And this should contain, list all of not only your prescription medicines, but any non-prescription medicines you might take, like an aspirin or maybe a, a heartburn medicine, any herbs, any vitamins, any dietary supplements, because those are medications. And if you're taking them regularly, you want to put them on your list. Don't assume we have an accurate list for you um, in our medical record. And we want you to share this list always with your healthcare providers and bring it with you. I love to have people actually bring all their bottles so I can see exactly what you're getting. So we, make, we know exactly what you're taking and that you're taking it appropriately. And then I, I generally recommend to try and use one pharmacy system um, so if you go to one chain versus another, those systems don't connect yet. So they may not know all the medicines you take. But if you go to one pharmacy system, they'll be able to see all the medicines that you take and make sure they're safe, that there are no negative interactions uh, among the medications. So that's just one general tip. Not always possible because you may have some mail order. I, I understand. Always know why you're taking your medications and just, you know, uh, what's the purpose of each medicine? Read the label. If anything doesn't make sense, you need to ask us. Be familiar with possible side effects. And with all medications, I say if you start a medication and you just don't feel right, stop it and, and call us or call your provider. Um, how do I store my medicine? Particularly important for insulin. And then finally, what to do if I miss a dose? Do I need to take it again, or can I wait until the next time I'm supposed to be scheduled to take that dose? Okay. And then finally, 
um, taking medicines consistently. And that's why the list I'm a really big advocate for. Um, but in, 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 and really use a system that you feel works for you. I have many people that like a pill box so they can kind of line up the medicines for the week, whatever it is. Um, you know, many people with type 2 diabetes are on. I have people on 15, 20 medicines. I, I don't know how they take them consistently, um, but people do, and they might have their own little system. So that's kind of my final um, recommendation um, is that you take your medicines. Um, if you're taking it differently, let us know because that might affect uh, our, our treatment choices for the day or for your, for your, for your diabetes. So thank you, um, and I think I'll open it up for questions now. Okay, so the uh, question was um, for, and I'll just some, you know, paraphrase that, what is it about being obese that actually in, increases a person's chance for having type 2 diabetes? Now, not all people who are overweight or obese develop type 2 diabetes. Okay, so that's one important consideration. But having excess weight makes our body less sensitive to insulin for many people. Um, so that's that insulin, so the opposite of not being as sensitive to insulin is to say I have insulin resistance. Now, even though I may have excess weight and more resistant to insulin, as long as my pancreas can compensate for this and increase its insulin release so my sugars are normal, I don't have diabetes. So that's the second. So we have one defect, which is insulin resistance, but you have to have that other problem of, of impaired insulin secretion or release to actually result in the sugar to go up. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.